So, um, we are here today, we're still in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, and I'm doing something, as I said last week, a little bit different, and we're just going to stop and deal with a particular question, and that is, should Christians drink alcohol? Now, there's a, there's a reason I, I did this, but before I get into it, I need to lay a couple uh, things out there. Years ago, I made a promise to God that... I would do two things. Number one, I would never shy away from anything in Scripture. Never. I, I said, because I, I believe, 2 Timothy 3.16, that this word is God-breathed. And it is sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for doctrine, for anything we need. If we got a question, that word of God, I believe, can answer. I believe that with all my heart. So I promised I would never shy away from anything. The other thing I promised was that I would always, to the best of my ability, try to keep my opinion out of it that I would only teach directly from Scripture, what Scripture has to, has to say. Now, with that in mind, let's, let's jump into our, our verses. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. And we've already covered these <clears throat> for the past few weeks, so you should be very familiar with them. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am uh, holy. Now, as we've said numerous times, this should probably be drilled into your brain by now, the word holy uh, comes from the root word to cut, and it means to separate or to set apart. And so when something is holy, it is separated from, from things that are evil or common or unclean or defiled, and, and it is separated to God. Now, as we just saw in that scripture, Christians are commanded to be holy. Yes, we are told to be holy. We are to be different. We are to be set apart from the world around us. But now, here's the thing. What does that mean? In, in what ways are we to be different? How do, we, how do we practically or in practice walk out holiness? So, what I decided to do was to pick an issue... And, and, and kind of figure this out and, and kind of go through it with you. And I put the issue alcohol. Now, before I go into that, I, I, want, to, I want you to understand, I could have picked numerous issues. Um, there are always going to be things in the Bible that the Bible doesn't directly address. The Bible doesn't address coffee, whether you should or should not drink coffee. The Bible doesn't address marijuana, whether a Christian uh, should or should not partake of marijuana. Anxiety medication. The Bible doesn't say, you know, you're not just going to find a scripture that says don't take this. Um, Facebook, whether you should or should be on Facebook. Electricity. And some of you are thinking, well, that's dumb. Not to the Amish. Not to the Amish. The Amish don't, don't connect to the power grid because they feel like the power grid let, lets you plug in things like TVs and radios and Internet, which immediately leads you to things that you should not have in your home. Yeah? So that's not a dumb thing. That may sound dumb to us, but it's not dumb to them. The point is, there's always going to be things that you're going to have to go to the Bible and make a decision on for yourself. And, and again, this, if you're going to attempt to walk in holiness, if you're going to try to walk in holiness, you're going to have decisions in your life. Do I partake or not? Do I participate or not? So what I wanted to do was pick alcohol. So even though this lesson is specifically about alcohol, it's really about much bigger than that. 
You could pick any of these things. It's about making good, wise, practical decisions using Scripture as your guide. Everybody with me? So that you can take what I'm going to talk to you here today, and you can, you can extrapolate this to, to several other issues. So, let's just jump right in and ask the big question. Is drinking alcohol a sin? My answer to that is no. It's not. It's not. Now, here's why. Can we try for one minute, just one minute, to set all the baggage aside? Just one minute. Try to set all your upbringing, all the times you've sat in church, and all the things. For one minute, let's just try to set that aside, all of our biases, all our backgrounds, and let's focus completely on Scripture and Scripture alone. Okay? Everybody with me? Now, I say try because guess what? That ain't easy to do. But let's try. I don't think anyone can make a case from Scripture and only from Scripture that drinking alcohol is a sin. First of all, there is no outright prohibition in the Bible against it. Just, there's no outright prohibition. In fact, Scripture seems to recognize, and, and, and be honest with you, I, I mean, it's all over the place. Scripture seems to recognize that alcohol, specifically wine, it uses the word wine a lot, has a place in society. If you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to the New Testament, you go back to ancient times, it was part of daily life uh, in those times in which these Bible stories were, were told. For example, and I'll just pick a few, um, but there are many, many more than this. The Old Testament has numerous scriptures where people drink wine. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Uh, Psalms 104, 14 through 15, talking to God, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen his heart. Amos 9, 14, uh, this is God speaking, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Isaiah even uses wine as an analogy for salvation when he says, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. We all know as we get to the New Testament that Jesus, as his very first miracle, did what? He turned water into wine. He's at the, the wedding at, at Cana. Uh, they run out of wine. His mom comes to him and says, Hey, they don't have no more wine. And so he tells them, hey, fill up these big, like, 50-gallon water jars that they had. Fill them up with, uh, with water. They filled them up to the brim. And it says now, he said, now draw some out. Take it to the master of the feast. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, had now become wine. So, and, and obviously, I don't think Jesus did it and think, well, now don't drink it. That wouldn't make much sense, would it? He, he, was, he was doing that so they would drink it. That was the first of his signs. It seems likely... And I know people will argue this, but it seems likely to me that even Jesus would have drank wine on occasions. I'll give you two scriptures. Matthew 26, 29, at the upper room, Jesus said this, I tell you, I will not drink, what? Again, of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Why would he say again if he had never done it? Right? Uh, Luke 7, Jesus said this, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drink, eating bread, nor drinking wine, you say he's got a demon. Jesus, the Son of Man, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. A wine-bibber is a drunk. 
they accuse him of being a drunkard because probably because he drank wine. Paul, we know in the New Testament, instructs Timothy to stop drinking only water, which was probably causing him to have stomach problems, and instead drink some wine. 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You see, you got to remember, in ancient times, the water's not clean, right? They got no refrigeration. They got no sanitation. Water is, is filled with bacteria. It's filled with con contaminants. It's just like today, if we go to certain places in the world, they'll tell you what? Don't drink the water. Don't drink the water. And it's still that way today. And it was very prevalent in those ancient times. So as a result, people often drank wine because it was, it was far less likely to be contaminated. Now, some people will try to make the argument that wine back then was not fermented, that it was basically just grape juice, that it, that it contained no alcohol. Now, there's a people a lot smarter than me, and, and maybe they can make that argument, but to me, that argument just does not hold any water. I, I believe wine was fermented, and I do believe this. I don't believe it was fermented to the degree that it is today. I, I think it contained a lot less alcohol. Uh, in fact, the Bible sometimes will talk about people lingering long at wine because you had to stay there a long time to actually feel any effects from it because it had less alcohol. But, but a simple study of Scripture, I think, bears that out. If you go back and look at the Hebrew and the Greek, they both have a word for wine, which is fermented, and a word for juice, which is not. In all those Scriptures, by the way, that I've quoted, every one of them used the word for wine, not, not grape juice. Every one of them used the word for, for wine. They had different words for that. So I just don't think that argument holds any water. Now, with all of that said, at the same time, even though wine, I think, in the Bible was permitted, and it could be a blessing, that the point is it was fraught with danger. Fraught with danger. I, sometimes I think it's a lot like money. By the way, is money good or bad? No. But the Bible warns us all the time about money, doesn't it? It's dangerous in having money because you can trust money and having too much money. And so it's not in itself it's good or bad. It's just the fact that... It, and I think the same thing here is, is, is true with, with wine. It, the Bible continuously warns us specifically about drunkenness and its effects. In fact, it is remarkable. And you go from Genesis to Revelation, it is remarkable about how many warnings there are in the Bible about the misuse of alcohol. I'm going to give you a few. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29 to 33, listen to this one. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. Isaiah 5.11 says this, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Ephesians 5.18 says this about as clearly as you can. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.19-21 says this. 
The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like that will not get into the kingdom of God. Do not get drunk. It tells us over and over and over again. You see, drunkenness is an altered state of mind where you lose control. It is the very opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in the Christian is self-control. That's what the, the, uh, the Spirit builds into us. And so getting drinking wine or drinking alcohol to the point where you lose control, that is the very opposite of what the Holy Spirit wants to build in us. So for the Christian, drunkenness, there is no... I mean, there's not even a question here. Drunkenness should, not, should just be unthinkable. You should never let yourself get to the point where you, you, your, your mind, the way you think, the way you speak has been altered by alcohol. It is an outright sin to do that. It's clear in the Bible, and we are called to uh, avoid it. So, what's my conclusion when I look at Scripture? Alcohol consumed in moderation, I, I, as far as I can tell, is not pr uh, prohibited in Scripture. Whether you do it is a matter of Christian freedom. It is a choice that every Christian, you and I, we have to make for ourselves. Okay? Let me say that again. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that it is forbidden in moderation. You cannot, there's a line that you cannot cross. You cannot cross where it begins to alter your mind, where it begins to lose self-control. You cannot cross that line. It's a sin. But in moderation, I see no prohibition against it in the Bible. Now, here's the implication for you and I. You and I need to make a decision. You and I need to make a decision. We have to, for our own individual selves, we should look at Scripture. We should take stock of our personal situation. That means us, our family. We should look at our cultural situation. And we need to decide whether abstinence or moderation is the best choice. Abstinence or moderation, what is the best choice for me? Now, with that said, I choose not to drink. I choose abstinence. Now, Here's what I want to explain to you. This is about me. I've made a choice. Now, here's the question. Why, why did I choose that? See, if the Bible doesn't... I need to back that up. Too many people just... I just see people just winging it, man. You just go through life and you're just winging it. And, and Scripture's sitting right there and you can find good practical help right there in Scripture, but you've got to open your Bible and you have to look for it. So... If I'm going to not drink, if I'm going to choose abstinence, what is behind my choice? What is it in the Bible that helps me to make that particular choice? Now, before I tell you why I choose abstinence, I want to say a couple things. I want you to understand, I have, it's not that I've drawn a line and say I'll never cross the line. If I were in a foreign country and I went into a village or I went in somewhere and the water was dirty and everybody's saying don't drink the wine and they put a, I mean don't drink the water and they put a meal in front of me and give me wine guess what guys I'm going to drink it it's not that it's somehow going to rob me of my salvation everybody with me I want you to understand that there may be particular cases where I'd say thank you 
Thank you for providing that to me, a drink that's not going to get me sick. If I was in a situation, maybe in another country, where for some reason if I didn't drink it, it would, uh, I would come off as a bad, uh, I would, you know, bad guest and, and, and offend them, then I might very well drink it. So I'm, I want you to understand this. See, my point is I know that alcohol going past my lips cannot defile me. It cannot defile me. Jesus said that. We, we looked at this last week, Mark seven fourteen to 20. He called the people to him again and he said, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's the things that come out of a person or what defiles him. So there's nothing going in out here that can defile me. So a sip of wine or a glass of wine cannot defile me. So there may be situations where I would partake. But in general, as my default behavior, I choose abstinence. I choose not to drink. Now, as I said, if you're going to choose like I do, you need to base that on something in the Bible. Okay? Or, or I hope, base it on something. So what did I base it on? I'm going to give you five principles this morning, five reasons that I chose abstinence. And I'm going to be really, really honest with you, okay? Um, and, and so I'll just lay it out there for you. Number one is my conscience. My conscience. I said earlier that let's try to set our backgrounds aside. Remember me saying that? But I also said try. <laughs> because it's very, very difficult thing uh, to do. At least it is for me, and my guess is it's probably for all of us. The fact is, I was raised in an abstinence environment. I was raised by parents who did not drink. I was raised in churches that did not drink. So, for whatever reason, and I don't remember, I was trying to think this morning, I don't remember my parents ever sitting me down and saying, don't you drink, or anything. I don't remember that. Maybe they did. But somehow, I get, coming out of that background, I got the idea, it's not right. It's wrong, right? So, my point is, it becomes part of who I am. Everybody with me? Now, I would feel uneasy if I went to a liquor store and I were to purchase a bottle of wine or alcohol and I were to use that. I'm going to be really honest with you. I'd feel guilty. Even if I just took a sip or I just took a glass, I would feel guilty. Now, I want you to listen to this because this is very important. Very important. Now, I just sat here and told you. I just told you that the Bible does not prohibit that but I would still feel guilty. Listen to Romans uh, 14, 14. This is Paul. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. Wine is not unclean. But look what he says. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is. He says, I know that that's nothing. Bread or meat or wine or, or thing, that's It's not unclean unless you think it is. Listen to what he says in 22 to 23, Romans 14. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. This is an amazing thing in the Bible. It really is. I want you to listen. The biblical principle here is you should never do anything to violate your conscience. Listen. Even if your conscience is telling you something is wrong, that's not wrong. That, that's a, that, think about that. Paul's saying if your conscience is saying, don't do it, even if it's not wrong, 
Paul said don't do it. Why? Because let me tell you, when you start walking down a road of violating your conscience, that is a dangerous road to walk. You start violating... Your, your conscience is given to us as a, as a moral barometer. And it's given to us to, to help us make good moral decisions. And if you start ignoring it, and ignoring it, and ignoring it, the Bible says you can get to the point where your conscience is seared like a hot iron. And you won't... You just there's, there's people today... And you see them on the news. It's like they don't have a conscience. They, got, they just flip from one thing to the next. Just depends on whichever way the winds are blowing. They just flip, flip over. They've gone against their conscience so many times that they don't even have a clue what to do anymore. They just let the winds of culture and the winds of whatever's going along at the current time make their decisions for them. Paul says, if it violates your conscience, don't do it. Don't do it. Now, let me say this. If there were some good reason to do it, I could work on retraining my... Does everybody hear what I'm saying? My conscience tells me it's wrong. And I, I, I understand that a lot of that just comes from my upbringing. I get it. And if I really wanted to, I could try to retrain my conscience or re-educate my conscience and say, Conscience... I know you think this is wrong, but see here what the Bible says. You don't. Everybody with me? I could. I could do that. But let me tell you, knowing what I know about alcohol, I have no desire at all to retrain my conscience. No desire at all to retrain my conscience. See, I, I know I owe those conscientious misgivings to my parents and my upbringing. I get all that, but I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm glad. I don't feel slighted in the least. What have I missed? What, what have I missed? Hangovers, cops showing up at my house because I, I got drunk and, and did something stupid or, or went off on a trip and got drunk and had an affair and ruined your marriage. Is that what I'm missing? Thank God. Amen. Thank God. Let me tell you, not drinking has worked out very well for me. It has worked out very well for me. So I have no reason to retrain my conscience. Number two, five principles. Alcohol is mind altering. Now, let me explain something here. Coffee is mind-altering, okay? Coffee alters your mind, but it doesn't alter your mind the way alcohol does. Alcohol is a depressant, and it, it depresses the central nervous system. It, it, it literally impacts the movement between your neurons and the transmitters in your brain, and it affects your speech, it affects your thought, it affects your, your walking and talking. In layman's terms, it literally numbs your mind. It numbs your mind. Listen to Proverbs 31, 4 through 5. The Bible understands this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for, tr or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. It, it numbs your mind. It makes you forget things that you should remember. It makes you act in ways you might not normally do. See, this inclines me toward abstinence because I'm going to be honest with you, alcohol would hinder me in doing what the Bible commands me to do. We just read this in 1 Peter, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. Isn't that what he said? Turn the robes of your mind into running shorts. Get rid of anything in your mind that can hinder you from serving Jesus Christ. How does alcohol help me do it? I, I can't think of any way. In fact, it has the danger of hurting me, of hindering me. And so because of that, I choose to set it aside. 
In fact, it can hinder me in doing the one thing I want more than anything in the world, and that is to recognize and do the will of God. That is my number one goal, recognize and do the will of God. Romans 12, 2 says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind so that you can prove or recognize what is the will of God, what is good. How does alcohol help me do that? It doesn't. It doesn't in no way. See, listen to me. The mature believer doesn't go around saying, what can I get away with? That's what kids do, by the way. That's what children do. Mature believers don't go around, how many enjoyable things can I get away with before I I cross some kind of line? No. That's what children do. Mature believers, what can I do to enhance my ability to serve Jesus Christ? What can I do to clear my mind even further to serve Jesus Christ? I'm looking for hindrances in my life that I can set aside. That's what mature believers do, not looking for things they can get away with. In general, I don't see how drinking alcohol in any way enhances your sensitivity to the will of God. In fact, I would say it actually weakens the intensity of our desire to be a holy person. I think it weakens that. And and, and in that scenario, it contradicts the one thing that I value most, and that is the will of, of God. Number three, it's addictive. It's addictive. Now, again, coffee's addictive. I get it, right? I, I, every morning I get up, I do the exact same thing. I go to that coffee pot, I make coffee, I drink coffee every single morning, right? But listen to me, there's not an alcoholic in the world who woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm going to be an alcoholic. There ain't an alcoholic in the world that just started out and said, you know what, Today's the start of a journey. I'm going to become an alcoholic. Nobody, nobody does that. It, it starts with one beer. I was watching a show uh, several years ago, and there was a lady, very successful real estate agent, agent, had a big home, had three kids, loving family, and she had a kind of a she felt like she had a stressful job, and so every day she would come home and she'd have a glass of wine, and that's all it was—just one glass of wine until one became two and two became a bottle, and that bottle became vodka, and the next thing you know, her life is destroyed. Her children are gone, her, her marriage is gone. She didn't start out thinking, I'm going to do that. But it got a hold of her, and it wouldn't let go. Let me tell you, I see no reason at all to take that chance. Now, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians six twelve, Paul says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. Why would you take that chance? I just, I, I, it just makes no sense to me. Number four, my children and my grandchildren. Listen to Romans 14, 20 to 21. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, including wine. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother or your sister to stumble. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. And when I read that verse, I selfishly think of my family. That's the first thing in my mind, I think of my family. You see, I may very well be able to handle alcohol in moderation and never have a, a problem with it. But my children and my grandchildren may not. How do I know that? God forbid that I set a standard of behavior for my children and my grandchildren that leads them to a road of ruin. God forbid I will not be a part of that. I just will not be. Now, they got their own choice to make. I get that. 
but I'm just, I cannot set a standard of behavior that could potentially lead them to, to ruin. I, I just, I'm sorry, I just can't do that. Number five, I want to be different. I want to be different. There, there is a really interesting dynamic in the Bible when it comes to alcohol, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here's this dynamic. The more responsibility a person has, or the holier they try to be, the more they limit or abstain from alcohol. Let me say that again. In the Bible, the more responsibility a person is giving, or the more holier walk they're trying to live, the more they are encouraged to limit or even abstain from alcohol. Let me give you a couple of examples. Old Testament priests. Leviticus 10, 8-11, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now watch, this, this is why you're not supposed to drink. Because you, as a priest, are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So he tells Aaron and the priest, don't drink. Why? Because it's your responsibility to be able to distinguish between clean and unclean, between good and bad. You're to teach all the statutes of the law. Alcohol does not help you do that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Abstain from it. Set a higher standard as priest of, of God. By the way, 1 Peter 2.5 says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood. Every single one of us is a priest of God. We are to be able to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, between the holy and the unholy, between the good and the bad. We are to teach our children. We are to teach those around us to disciple, to mentor. In that scenario, we are fulfilling the responsibility that those priests did. There's no way alcohol helps us. Nazarites, you may have heard in the, in the Bible, there were men and women who would make a vow. They didn't have to, but they could make a voluntary vow and, and it was the highest vow you could make for holy living. It's called the Nazarite vow. And part of this vow to live a holy life was a separation from alcohol. Number six, one through three. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. So again, that was part of the holiness vow. You just you don't have anything to do with that. Kings, we've already seen this when I brought it up earlier. Proverbs 31, 4 through 5. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Why? Because they have a responsibility. They have a responsibility to distribute justice, not to pervert the rights of people, which alcohol can, can lead to. We get into the New Testament, and you have a New Testament elder 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, an elder, or an overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine. Why? Because it's his responsibility to set an example. It's responsibility to teach. It's his responsibility to be clear-minded. And when you start to walk down the path of alcohol, how do you know where the line is? How do you know where the line is? Let me tell you, did you know, I don't know if any of you have ever noticed this, Timothy had probably been encouraged by Paul to not drink alcohol at all. 
don't know if you ever noticed that. He, he writes to him and he says, no longer drink what? Only water. See, Timothy, as an overseer, as a bishop, I think Timothy had made a decision to abstain from alcohol altogether. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. And then Paul writes and says, man, this, this water thing is killing you. You got, you got stomach problems. You, you're going to have to take at least a little wine here and there for your stomach's sake because of the contaminants and stuff. But my guess is, is that Timothy was a teetotaler. He, he practiced abstinence because of his position in the church. So again, I just find this all incredibly interesting. The more authority, spiritual authority, even the more uh, secular authority you have like a king, the more you desire to live a holy life comes with that a prohibition or at least a limitation of the use of alcohol because of its potential to create uh, problems. 70% of people in America drink alcohol. 70%. I think... I, don't, I think that's low, to be honest with you. I tell you, I travel, I, I work for a company, and I have to go places and go to, I have to go to dinners, and I'm all, I'm, I can tell you time and time again, I'm the only one. I'm the only one, over and over and over. I don't care if I'm at a table with 12 people, if I'm in a room with 120 people, I'm the only one. It's got to be higher than that. 70%, though, is what they say, drink regularly. 15 million alcoholics in this country. 200,000 deaths annually uh, uh, attributed to alcohol. 31% of our traffic deaths are alcohol-related. 10% of children live in a home with alcoholic parents, and 1 in 12 marriages end because of drinking. Alcohol is literally ruining lives and families and marriages of people all around us. I want to be different. I want to be different. I, I, don't, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to just be like them. I want to walk out a holy life and be different. Legally, lawfully, uh, scripturally, could I have a glass of wine? Sure. But I want to be different. I want to set an example. I don't want to... I, I, you know, I see people, we boycott Target. We boycott this. We boycott alcohol. <laughs> Ever think about that? Look what it's doing to your friends and your family and your... And your, and your neighbors. I choose to say no. Not me, not my family. I choose to be different. I choose to set a higher standard. But again, that's just me. I said it before. Drunkenness and addiction are sinful. That is absolutely clear in the Bible. Consumption of alcohol in moderation, that's a choice you have to make. It's a choice you have to make. The question is, is it the best choice? You notice the title was not, Can a Christian Drink Alcohol? The question is, Should a Christian Drink Alcohol? I want to close with one scripture, which uh, when I found this scripture years ago, I wrote it down, and I've never forgotten it, because this is an amazing scripture. Paul says this, Romans 14, 5, One person esteems one day is better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be convinced in his own mind. And this is what's amazing about Scripture. Paul says two Christians can come together and there can be an issue and they can disagree. One person says, look, the, the, the Sunday is a special day and we should go to church on Sunday. And uh, another can say, man, you know, all days are alike. There's, and Paul says, you can come together and you can literally come down on different sides of the coin. But he said, whatever you do, Make sure you're fully convinced in your own mind. Don't go into it halfway. 
Don't go into it just haphazardly. Don't just make decisions because this person said or that person said. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Remember what he said. Don't disobey your conscience. If you're not fully convinced, don't do it. I just think that's an amazing, because that tells us there's not like always one decision that's right. There can be decisions that are total opposites of one another, and he just says be fully convinced in your own mind. So I encourage you, as you make choices in life, go to your Scripture. Use Scripture to help you make those, those choices. As I said, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, all things that have to do with righteousness. That Bible is an amazing book. So if anyone asks my opinion as we close, here it is. Due to the biblical warnings regarding alcohol and its effects, Due to the easy temptation to go over the line. I was at, somebody was asking me about this last week. They said they couldn't be here today, and we were, he wanted to know what I was going to say, and I, t- I kind of talked to him about it, and, and I, we were talking about that line. Where's the line? Where's the line when you go from moderation to mind-altering? How do you, you know what I'm saying? Is it the next sip? Is it the third sip after the, where is it? That's a very difficult thing to make, it's, and it's so easy to go over that line. And due to the possibility of causing others to stumble. Like I said, I don't, I don't want my grandchildren to say, well, I, I can drink because Pop does. Pop does it. It's okay. No, I'm not, I'm not going down that road. At the end of the day, they've got to make their own decision, but I'm not going to set them on that road. I believe the best choice for a Christian is to abstain. That's, that's what I believe. That's what I do, and that's what I would encourage my children and grandchildren to do. Uh, final thoughts. <clears throat> a person, as I said, if you want to try to walk in holiness, and we've been talking about this the last three weeks, you're going to have decisions, right? You're going to have to, should I partake of that? Should I participate in that? But let me, I'm going to change one word. A person attempting to walk in legalism will have the same decisions. We need to be very, very careful that we don't walk over into legalism. Legalism involves two things. We throw that word out a lot. I'll tell you what legalism means. It means treating biblical standards of conduct as rules to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. I'm going to set out a bunch of rules and I'm going to follow those rules and and, and God's going to pat me on the back. Wow, Wow, you're such a great guy. We're not using his powers, we're just following the the rules. But here's the second thing about legalism. Legalism will create even more rules than Scripture says. They'll say, well, if a hundred rules is good, a thousand must be better. And then we'll make adherence to those rules the means by which we qualify people to be a Christian. Well, I make a rule not to drink, and that person drinks, therefore they can't be a Christian. That's legalism, folks. That's legalism. In the first case, we're, we're, we're using our own power to make ourselves moral. In the second case, we're using our own power to try and make other people moral. And in both cases, we're failing to rely on the sanctification of the power of God in sanctification. Let me tell you, God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. And I'm going to tell you this, there will be 10 million times more people in hell because of legalism than there are because of alcoholism. And I, I don't be, that's an understatement. See, legalism is a dangerous disease. In fact, it's more dangerous than alcoholism because it's clean. It's sanitary. 
You can't recognize it. Satan's like that. He keeps his most dangerous diseases nice and clean and sanitary. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes men depend on themselves. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives it strength. Alcoholism, alcoholics don't feel welcome in church. Legalists love church. Love it because they love to hear their rules exalted and extolled. I say all this to remind you, and the reason I bring this up is, once again, what we need in this church is not rules, but relationship. We don't need more rules. We need relationship. Holiness is not a way to get to Jesus. Jesus is the way you get to holiness. So when I talk about things and I say, I don't think you should do this or I don't think you should do that, we've got to be very careful we don't step over into legalism. What we need to step over into is a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll come back to uh, 1 Peter verse 17, 1 Peter 1, 17, and we'll pick up with motivation. Let's pray. Father.